Well, good morning, everybody. If you can do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 21 in a second as we continue this series that we have been in entitled The Kingdom. And as you turn there, just one more quick announcement. Uh, the first Tuesday of every month, we hold a, a prayer time at our church. And uh, not this Tuesday because it's the last Tuesday of the month, but next Tuesday, June 7th, uh, we will be having our next monthly prayer gathering. And it is going to be uh, in a different location than we've usually had. It's going to be room room 317 on the top floor here. Uh, but we would love for you to attend. This is just an incredible time of just coming together and seeking God on behalf of, uh, of our church and our community, our nation, us individually. And uh, so we would love for you to be able to attend. Again, it's 7 p.m., 7 to 8.30 p.m., Tuesday, June 7th, in room 317. So, uh, Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to start in verse 21. I'm going to read our passage we're going to look at today. Then we'll pray and then we'll see what God has for us. So this is what we read. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should, be, should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, and we just ask, uh, Father, just for your, uh, your continued presence in this service, Lord. God, as we talk about an issue that I believe is very near and dear to your heart, Lord, I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would just speak through me, Father. I pray, God, that you would do what you do best, which is change hearts, change characters, God. I pray that what we talk about today would be something that would just be instilled in each one of us, God, that we would be the type of people that you want and have called us to be. And so, God, we just give this time over to you, and we ask that you would be glorified. We ask that you would be pleased in and through it. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're continuing the series that we have been in entitled The Kingdom. And what we're doing in this series is we are taking a look at some of the parables of Jesus, some of the stories that Jesus told during his ministry, uh, which as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks are all about the kingdom of God, all about the, God's reign and rule here on this earth and the inbreaking of that reign and rule. And if you were with us last week, you know that last week we took a look at what is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. It's the parable commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And the main point of last week, and I don't know whether or not you got this, that's not your fault, that's my fault, but the main point of last week is the parable of the prodigal son teaches us that we enter into the kingdom of God solely by the grace of God. We cannot earn our way into God's kingdom. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of God's grace and forgiveness, and that is the only way that we get into God's kingdom. And so that's what we talked about last week. 
This week, and really now in the weeks that follow what we're going to do, is we're going to talk about what it looks like now to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, as subjects of the kingdom of God. Don't misunderstand what it means to be saved by God's grace. To be saved by God's grace does not mean that there is now no standard of living. There's no conduct for us. Absolutely not. That's not the case. Every single kingdom on this earth, every single nation on this earth, has a set of rules and regulations and laws and standards and conducts that the citizens of that nation are supposed to live by. And the kingdom of God is no exception to that. And if you study often the laws of a nation, one of the things that you will find is you will find that they often reflect the passion, the conviction, uh, the character of the one who is in charge of that kingdom, whether it be the president or the dictator or the king or whatever it might be. And since, as we learned last week, the kingdom of God is led by a king, our God, who is ultimately a king of grace, one of the things that we would expect from that is that we who are citizens of that kingdom, that we would also be people of grace, that we would be expected to show the same forgiveness to other people that God has shown to us. And as you look through the pages of scripture, you see indeed that that is the case. Uh, a few weeks ago, my dad and I were having kind of an interesting conversation. This is the kind of conversation you have when your son is a pastor. Uh, but my dad and I were talking about service of all things, the idea of serving one another. And my dad said, he said, Chris, as I look at the pages of Scripture, it seems to me that kind of the key characteristic that should mark us Christians is that we are servants of one another. He says, I, I don't see anything else that gets more at the heart of what it means to be a Christian than the idea of serving each other. And I thought about what my dad said, and I said to him, you know, you're right. The only thing I'd add to that, if there's any other character quality that really gets to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, I would say it's forgiveness. Because God forgives us, we are expected then to forgive other people. And I really think those two things, I think service and forgiveness, those are at the heart of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as anybody who has tried to live a life of those two things will tell you, uh, it is actually much easier said than done. A life of service, a life of forgiveness is very hard. And that's especially the case with forgiveness. Uh, forgive the lack of eloquence here, men and women, but simply put, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is tough. And the reason why is because forgiveness is so personal. You know, when we get wronged, when someone does something to us that would require forgiveness, there are so many raw emotions that go on within us. And I think for many of us, when we get hurt by somebody, there is sort of a, a promise we make to ourselves. There is a resolution we make to ourselves. And that is that we will never allow that to happen again. We will never allow ourselves to be hurt in the same way again. And that is why for many in this world, there is an unspoken, and sometimes in fact it's even spoken rule, that many people live by. And that is that there should be a limit to forgiveness. That there should be a limit to the number of times we forgive someone for wronging us. In the course of studying for this message, I came across an interesting book. I bought it based on the title alone. It's called Getting Even, Forgiveness and Its Limits. And basically what this author argues is exactly what I just said, that there should be a limit to forgiveness, that there should be a limit to the number of times we forgive someone who has wronged us. In fact, he says repeated forgiveness is a sign of great weakness. And as I was reading this book, it struck me that this book would fit right at home among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. You know, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they love to debate a number of different issues, but one of the issues they love to debate is should there be a limit to forgiveness? 
Should there be a limit to the number of times I forgive someone who repeatedly wrongs me? And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day said, absolutely there should be. In fact, many of them put a number to it. And the number was two. According to most Jewish teachers of the day, you were only required to forgive someone two times. In other words, if someone hurts you, you have to forgive them. If someone hurts you again, you had to forgive them a second time. But then, if that same person comes back and does something wrong to you a third time, According to most Jewish teachers, you were no longer obligated at that point to forgive them. And I don't know about for you, but to me, that sounds like a pretty reasonable piece of advice that many of us would be able to get behind, right? Yeah, if if someone wrongs me, I'll forgive them. If they wrong me again, that will be tough, but I'll forgive them a second time. But if they come back and they wrong me again, then at that point, it is obvious they're just taking advantage of my grace. They're just taking advantage of my mercy. And you can't expect me to forgive that person, right? So that seems like a pretty reasonable piece of advice that many of us would be able to get behind. The question I have for us today is, is that how the kingdom of God, though, is supposed to work? Is that how we who are citizens of the kingdom of God, is that how we're supposed to respond when someone wrongs us? Well, we're not the only people to ask that question. That's what starts out this entire passage that we looked at, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And here we see one of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of Peter. He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus this exact question we're talking about. Jesus, should there be a limit to forgiveness? How many times do I need to forgive someone who has wronged me? And Peter provides here his own suggestion. He says, up to seven times? And you can almost hear sort of the teacher's pet that Peter is as he says this. You see, Peter has been around Jesus for a couple of years by now. He has heard Jesus talk endlessly about the grace of God. He knows that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. And therefore, the standard Jewish answer at this time, that you only forgive someone twice, that seemed to Peter to be too stingy. At the same time, however, there has to be some limit to forgiveness. So Peter takes the standard Jewish answer, he multiplies it by three, he adds one, he comes up with seven. How about seven, Jesus? Should I forgive someone up to seven times? And I think Peter is expecting here a pat on the back. I think he's expecting Jesus to say, well done, Peter, you got it. Yes, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. Two's not enough. At the same time, there still needs to be a limit to forgiveness. Seven seems like a reasonable number. We'll put it at seven. But is that what Jesus says? Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus here blows Peter's response out of the water. No, Peter, you'd only forgive someone seven times. You forgive them 77 times. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to how exactly that number should be translated. Some of your Bibles say 77. Some of your Bibles say 70 times 7 If you multiply that out, that equals 490. Uh, The Greek can be translated either way. Actually, at the end of the day, the, the result is the same. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying that forgiveness is not about keeping track. Forgiveness is not about keeping count. If you're the type of person who is keeping count of the number of times you forgive someone, you're doing it wrong. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying you need to forgive someone as many times as they need it. You need to forgive someone as many times as they have wronged you. What Jesus is saying here is he is saying that forgiveness has no limits. Now, men and women, this is absurd. It is absurd what Jesus is saying here. 
This completely flies in the face of the teaching of his time. It completely flies in the face of teaching of our time. It's not about forgiveness. It's about getting evil, even. It's about going out and finding the person who did wrong to us. It's about making them pay for what they have done to us. How can Jesus recommend something so absurd? How can he recommend something so reckless? Well, if maybe some of us are struggling with this, imagine Peter. Peter had never heard anything like this before. And I think there was probably a look of utter disbelief on Peter's face. And that's why Jesus does not end his statement here in verse 22. Instead, he continues on. He tells a story. He tells a parable. And what Jesus does in this parable is he answers the question of why. Why in the world, when it is clear that someone is just taking advantage of our mercy, they're just taking advantage of our grace, why in the world would we continue to forgive that person? Well, in order to answer that question, Jesus tells a story. And in this story, he uses an image that all of us would be able to relate to. It's the image of money. It's the image of debt. Jesus tells the story of a king who is one day, we're told, settling the accounts in his kingdom. He's collecting the money that is owed him. If Jesus were telling the story today, he may say it like this. It's tax day. It's April 15th, and the government is collecting its money. And as this king is beginning to settle accounts, he realizes that there is someone in his kingdom who owes him an astronomical amount of money. Look with me at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 18. As he began his settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. So there is a man who owes the king 10,000 bags of gold. Literally, that reads 10,000 talents. A talent was actually a denomination of money at that time, and it wasn't just any denomination of money. It was the highest denomination of money that they had. And so to owe 10,000 of the highest denomination of money, that was an unheard of amount. In fact, that's kind of a, a national debt worth of money. We really get the impression here that this is meant to be an unrealistic amount. Not only was a talent the highest denomination of money, but 10,000 was really the highest number that they knew at this time. If Jesus were saying this today, he may put it like this. This man owed the king a billion gazillion dollars, okay? It's an unrealistic amount of money. And the point that Jesus is making is it's an amount of money that could never be paid back. This king will never get his money back, and the king knows that. And so he decides to try and recoup some of his losses. So he sells this man and his family into slavery so he can at least get some of his money back. And it's at this point our parable this week looks pretty similar to our parable last week. Because now all of a sudden, like the younger son last week, we have a man who is in a desperate situation. Verse 26. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. So what does his servant do? He falls to his knees. He begs for mercy. He begs for compassion. He says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. Now that's a complete lie. And both the men know that. There's no way this money can be paid back. But this man is desperate. And so he wants to get out of his punishment. And as we learned last week, when people are in desperate situations, how does our God, how does our king respond? He responds with grace, right? He responds with mercy. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So what does the king do? We're told he takes pity on the man. It's the same word translated as compassion when the father had compassion last week towards the younger son. He has compassion on him. He cancels the debt. Literally, he forgives the debt, and he lets this man go. And so this man has just been forgiven an astronomical debt. And I want you men and women, just for a second, put yourself in the shoes of this man who has just been forgiven. Imagine tomorrow afternoon, you get a phone call, it's the bank. They've canceled your mortgage, they've canceled your your business loan, they've canceled your student loans. You don't owe a single cent anymore. 
how would you feel? What would you want to do? I mean, you'd probably want to go out and throw a party, right? You'd probably want to go out and tell the whole world how grateful you are for what happened. I mean, we can imagine a hundred different things that you'd want to do, but do you think it would ever cross your mind, right after being forgiven this enormous debt, do you think it would ever cross your mind to then go out, find someone who owes you money, and demand that they pay it back? Do you think that would ever cross your mind? Well, as hard as that might be to believe, that's exactly what this man does. Right after being forgiven a national debt worth of debt, he goes out and he finds a man who owes him money. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. So what does our guy do? He goes out and he finds someone who owes him a hundred silver coins. By the way, that's not an insignificant amount of money. It's about $4,500 in today's currency, so it's not nothing but it is literally one six hundred thousandth of the 10,000 talents that this man was just forgiven. You divide the billion gazillion dollars that this man owed by 600,000 and you get 100 silver coins. And what does our guy do? He finds this man who owes him money. We're told he grabs him. He begins to choke him and he demands his money back. I mean, this is a scene out of like Maury Povich, right? This is a scene out of Jerry Springer. What is going on here? Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. So this poor guy, he falls to his knees and using almost exactly the same words that our guy used to the king, begs for mercy, begs for forgiveness. But our guy doesn't give it to him, verse 30, but he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. Then the king called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Verse 34, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So what does the king do? Because this man doesn't have mercy, forgiveness towards someone else, the king now refuses forgiveness towards this man. And he punishes him. And as you see here, the punishment is actually worse than it was going to be before. Before, he was just going to sell the man and his family into slavery. Now he takes the man, he puts him in prison, it says, to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And what do we say about this amount of money? It can't be paid back. This man is in prison to be tortured for the rest of his life. And that's what leads us to the last verse of this passage, which is the most chilling verse of this passage. But before we get there, let's take a step back here and understand what's going on. As I said, the question that started this out is why would we not limit forgiveness to other people? Why would we not limit forgiveness to other people? And the point that Jesus is making in this parable is why would we limit forgiveness to others when God doesn't limit forgiveness for us? Why, when God doesn't demand payment for our sins against Him, why would we then go out and demand payment for someone else's sins against us? You see, the money in this parable, the debt in this parable, it's obviously a metaphor. It's a metaphor of of sin, our sin towards God. Several times in the Bible, sin is talked about in, in terms of debt. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debt, we pray. Sin is talked about in terms of debt. And the point that Jesus is making here is we are all like the servant at the beginning of this parable. Because of our sin towards God, we have racked up an astronomical debt. We're going to put something interesting on the screen. This is a, a website you can go to. It's called nationaldebtclocks.org. 
And this website, it shows our current national debt as a nation. Right now, we owe as a nation to foreign governments $19.2 trillion. And as you can see here, it's always going up, right? Why? Because we're always spending more as a nation than we're bringing in. And so our national debt is always rising. Well, men and women, this is a picture of our sin. This is a picture of our sin towards God. Because of our sin, the Bible says we are in debt towards God. And because I believe we sin someday in every way, this debt that we owe God is always going up. And for all of us in this room, this debt is so big that we could never, ever hope to repay it. But guess what? The amazing thing about our God, this is what we learned last week, is that we don't have to repay it, right? If we come before God and we ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive us. But along with that comes an expectation. And the expectation is that we would respond to others in the same way that God responds to us. What at its heart is unforgiveness? Unforgiveness is trying to make sure someone else pays for the wrong that they have done to us. But since God doesn't demand that we pay for the wrong that, he has, that we have done to him, why in the world would we then demand that someone else pay for the wrong that they have done to us? Since God has forgiven us of so much sin, an astronomical amount of sin, why in the world would we turn around and not forgive someone else? Since God doesn't limit the number of times that we can come to him and ask him for forgiveness, why would we ever limit the forgiveness that we show to other people? In fact, and this is going to make you uncomfortable, and I know this, but in fact, the Bible seems to suggest here that maybe a sin that God doesn't forgive us for is the sin of unforgiveness. That maybe if there's a sin that God doesn't have grace for, it's the sin of not having grace for other people. That's what we find in the last verse of this passage. I said it's the most chilling verse. Look at verse 35. Jesus concludes this by saying the following, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. How did the king treat the servant? He had him thrown into prison to be tortured. That's obviously a picture of hell. It's obviously a picture of eternal punishment. And really what I think Jesus is saying here is that if we are unforgiving people, if a characteristic of us is that we're not people who are easy to forgive other people, then that may be a sign that we have never truly met Jesus in the first place. And therefore our destiny is the same as it is for anybody who hasn't met Jesus. Eternal punishment. You see why I said to my dad what I did? Simply put, to be a Christian is to be a person who forgives. To be a Christian is to be a person who forgives. To be a Christian is to be a person who realizes how much we have been forgiven by God and who therefore desires then to forgive other people. To be a Christian is to be a person who forgives. And we need to understand, men and women, this is what is best for us. It's what's best for us. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that the commands that God gives us in Scripture, and the command to forgive is one of them, the command that God gives us in Scripture, they are not meant to be burdensome. They are meant to lead to the best possible life here on this earth. You want the best possible life here on this earth? Become a person who is quick to forgive. And the reason I make that point is because I can imagine what's going on in some of you right now. Some of you are having this sort of internal debate with me. You're arguing with me. 
And you're saying, Chris, you know, it's really easy for you to stand up there and talk about forgiveness, but you have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea the evil that has been done to me in my life. So it's easy for you to stand up there and talk about forgiveness. And listen, you're right. I don't have any idea that what's been done to you. I don't have any idea the evil that's been done to you in your life. To use the analogy of the sermon, I've never had to forgive someone even a, a, a 50 silver coins, let alone 100 silver coins. I've only had to forgive someone at most of 20 silver coins, and even that's been tough. So I don't know what it's like to forgive someone of the evil that some people have done to some of you. But at the same time, for those of you who might be struggling with unforgiveness, let me ask you this question. While being sensitive to what you've gone through, let me ask you this question. What is unforgiveness doing to you? How is it enriching your life? I have on the stage here, I have a a bottle of bleach. Let's say I were to say to one of you, hey, I'm, I'm really mad at you for what you've done to me. You really hurt me. So I'm going to drink this bottle of bleach, and I hope you get sick as a result of it. I hope you suffer as a result of it. What would you say to me? See, that's crazy, right? Chris? You can't drink a bottle of bleach. You can't drink a bottle of poison and hope the other person gets sick, hope the other person suffers. And you're right. But don't you realize that's what unforgiveness is like? Unforgiveness is like drinking a bottle of poison and hoping the other person gets sick. You see, unforgiveness very rarely, if ever, men and women, negatively affects the person we're not forgiving. But it does negatively affect us. I have had people who have done wrong to me. There's one individual in particular, in fact, I've talked about him from this stage before. Over the past six years, repeatedly, over and over and over again, this person has done things that's wronged me. He has done things that's that's hurt me. And I got to tell you, I have struggled over the past six years with forgiveness for this person. I have struggled with it. And as I have struggled with unforgiveness in my heart, here's how it's affected me. I've had sleepless nights as I've thought about my anger towards this person. I've had times with my family ruined as all of a sudden this person will be brought to mind, my blood will begin to boil, and a time that I'm supposed to be with my family, I'm lost in my head and my thoughts about this particular person. And I can't tell you the number of imaginary conversations I have had with this person where I hold him accountable for what he has done, where I let him know how angry I am at him. And by the way, I win every single one of those arguments. (laughs) I do. I don't think it's unrealistic to say that when you put all this together, I have wasted days of my life as I have struggled with forgiving this person. That's what I've suffered. What has this other person suffered? Nothing. In fact, I think he thinks we're on good terms. I think he thinks we're friends. As I have struggled with forgiveness of this person, I have suffered. This guy has not suffered one lick. It hasn't made one lick of difference in his life. And I think if you examine your situation, you'll see that's the case. Unforgiveness is like drinking a bottle of poison and hoping the other person suffers. Yeah, but Chris, if I forgive this person, then aren't I denying all the wrong that they have done to me? Absolutely not. Now, Satan likes us to believe that. Satan knows how bad unforgiveness is for us. And so he tries to keep us trapped in it. And one of the ways that he does that is he whispers in our ear, you know, if you forgive this person, you're, you're denying all the wrong that they've done to you. You're pretending that they didn't do wrong to you, but they did do wrong to you, so you can't forgive them. But men and women, forgiveness is not denying that someone did wrong to us. In fact, the very idea of forgiveness suggests that we have to recognize that someone did do wrong to us, that there's a debt in the first place. 
I mean, think of, think of it in financial terms. Think of it when your bank, if your bank were to cancel your mortgage, would they pretend that you never took out a mortgage? No, the fact that you took out a mortgage is a matter of public record. When the bank cancels your mortgage, they don't pretend that you never had a mortgage. What do they do? They just don't make you pay for it. Think of God and his forgiveness. God forgives us of our sins. Does God pretend that we never sinned? Does he deny that we ever sin? Absolutely not. In fact, exactly the opposite. God says your sin was so serious that in order to pay for it, it cost the life of my son. God doesn't deny that we sin. He didn't pretend that we, we sinned. He just doesn't make us pay for it. And that's what forgiveness is. If I could come up with my own definition of forgiveness, and this is my own definition, so I know it's flawed, but if I could come up with my own definition of forgiveness, it would be the following. To forgive is to let go of my responsibility to make someone pay for the wrong that they've done to me. To forgive is to let go of my responsibility to make someone pay for the wrong that they've done to me. You know what you're doing when you forgive someone? You are giving them over to God. You are giving them over to God and you're saying, God, I absolve myself of my responsibility to make sure this person pays, to make sure this person suffers for what they have done to me. I give them to you and I allow you to deal with them. That's what you're doing when you forgive someone. In fact, that's what the very Greek word translated forgive suggests. This past week I did a word study of the Greek word forgive. And here's what I found. It was very fascinating. The Greek word translated forgive is the same Greek word that is also translated in our Bibles, let go. The Greek word for forgive and the Greek word for let go, same word. And in fact, if you study the origins of this word, you will see that the Greek word translated forgive originally meant to throw or to hurl, as in throwing a ball, as in hurling a ball. And I don't know about for you, but that creates a wonderful picture for me. What are we doing when we forgive someone? We're throwing that person over to God. We're hurling that person over to God, and we're saying, God, you deal with this person, and God will deal with that person, and he deals with them in a multitude of different ways. Sometimes, just so you know, God does make someone pay for the evil that they've done to us. Romans 12, 19, do not seek revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes God does make people pay for the evil that they've done to us. Sometimes God is able to do something better. I, I, I was bullied a lot when I was a kid. And in my adult years, I have had former bullies come up to me and apologize to me for what they have done. And it's clear that they are different people. And i got to tell you, men and women, to see a former enemy, to see a former bully become a man of God, or in one case, a woman of God, uh, there is nothing that beats that. There is nothing that beats that. Sometimes God makes people pay. Sometimes God transforms people. But here's the best part. I don't have to worry about it. God deals with it. And it's so free. You struggling with forgiving someone today? You struggling with an ex-husband, ex-wife, co-worker, neighbor, ex-mother-in-law, son, daughter? Here's what you need to do. First of all, admit. Admit that what they've done to you is wrong. Don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Admit that what they've done to you is wrong. In fact, write it down. So-and-so did wrong to me. So-and-so hurt me. So-and-so owes me for what they have done. Admit that what they've done to you is wrong. And then once you admit that, give them over to God. 
Give them over to God. In fact, you know me. I like to use my hands when I talk, right? I think it's good to physically do this, to say, God, I give this person over to you. I throw this person over to you. You deal with them. You take care of them. Give them over to God and truly release them to God. Listen, Satan's going to try to bring them back to your mind over and over and over again. Every time you do, he does that, train yourself to give that person back over to God. Admit that what they've done is wrong. Give them over to God. And then thirdly, protect yourself. Protect yourself. I don't believe that in order to forgive someone, it means that you have to put yourself in the same situation to be hurt again. I don't think this king would ever loan this servant a billion gazillion dollars again, right? If you're in an abusive relationship, yes, I do believe the Bible calls us to forgive those abusers, but if it's clear the person is not going to change, you don't need to stay in that abusive relationship. Protect yourself. Admit that what they've done is wrong. Give them over to God. And then protect yourself. And in fact, you should have gotten this when you uh, walked in. This is a little handout we gave. On the back of it, there is an exercise to really take you through the first two steps here. Uh, the top part is where you admit that what they've done is a wrong. wrong. It's, a, it's a place where you fill in the name and what the person did to you and how it made you feel. And then the bottom part is a prayer that you can pray. And actually, in just a moment, we're going to give you a second to, to spend some time with it. But at the end of the day, men and women, realize where all this comes from. This all comes from the fact that we have been forgiven so much and therefore we desire to forgive others. You know, there is an individual uh, who's making the news right now. And this individual claims to be a Christian. But in a recent interview, he was asked whether or not he's ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said no. And the reason why is because he said he's never done anything in his life that he thinks would need forgiveness. Now this is a man, men and women, who has admitted to multiple affairs with married women in his past. But in his mind, he has never done anything that needs forgiveness. And listen, it is ultimately for God to decide this. But I find it really hard to believe that this man is a Christian. Because what does it mean to be a Christian but to recognize how in debt we are to God? And how much God has forgiven us of that debt. It's like the words of my favorite hymn. I quoted it last week. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And when you realize how great a debtor you are to the grace of God and how lavishly he pours it out on us, then when someone else wrongs you, you can't help but want to do everything in your power and everything in the power of God to forgive that person. That's why as we close here today, here's what we're going to do. David and Aaron, they're going to lead us in a, in a final song of worship. And this is a song of worship, but I want to treat this as sort of a reflection time, a response time. And you got these cards when you came in, and I think maybe at least, I know last night you got pencils as well. And I would encourage you during this time just to walk through this. Fill in the top part, who you choose to forgive, what they did wrong to, how it made you feel, and then spend some time praying on your own and, and praying this prayer at the bottom and releasing this person towards God. And please, if you are struggling with forgiveness, don't leave today until you've taken a step towards forgiving someone. But in addition to that, we know that there are some people who have had just enormous evil that has been done to them, and this talk of forgiveness is really hard. And maybe for some of you just in general, you're really struggling with an individual. And sometimes it's helpful to have someone pray for you in that area. So during this last song, we're going to have our prayer team down in front here. 
And if you want to come forward and receive prayer, I would love for you to do that. And listen, there is no shame in that. Probably all of us need to come forward and receive prayer. But if you want to take that step today, we would love for you to do that. And we'd love to pray for you in the area of forgiveness or honestly any other area that you might have. So would you do me a favor, would you bow your heads with me as we head into this time? And at this time, actually, as we pray, I'm going to actually call our prayer team forward. If you can make your way out of our seats and come to the front of the stage here. And Father, I think about this, uh, this topic of unforgiveness, Lord. And God, I go back to what I said earlier. I really think this is a tool of the enemy. He knows how bad unforgiveness is for us. And so he tries to keep us trapped in it. And it does seem so attractive. Of course, we want the people to suffer for the evil that they have inflicted upon us. But God, would we realize today how dangerous it is, Lord? Father, you, you forgive us. God, the second we ask for forgiveness, God, even before that, I believe sometimes, Lord, you forgive us, God. And so, Father, we need to be people of grace and forgiveness as well. So, Father, I pray for this time as we wrestle with these individuals that you have laid on our heart, as we wrestle with these cards, as people come forward and receive prayer, Lord. I pray at this time, God, that you would, that you would release some prisoners here, Father, that you would set chains free as we have a heart of forgiveness towards those who have wronged us. And so, God, we just ask for your peace and your presence in this place. Would you be glorified? Would you do the work that only you can do? And that is change hearts, God. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. And please now, as you feel uh, led, come forward and receive prayer.